Hello, welcome to my podcast, A Parallel, The Chinese Culture Revolution and the French Revolution. This is episode 12, Not a One-Time Event. Last time, I spoke about the reign of terror ending in France. She got another new constitution in the year 1795. And the first iteration of the directory made its appearance. We also learned about China's continued descent into poverty and starvation. On a positive note, however, we also learned that some of its citizens found a way to survive, and in some cases, thrive. In this episode, I want to get into the demise of the Jacobins. I'll talk a lot more about Napoleon Bonaparte, as he is increasingly becoming a major figure. I also want to zoom in a little more about the European wars. In China, we learn about another area of tragedy, and that was the educational system. I also want to talk about the counterculture revolution that began around the early to mid-1970s. And Chairman Mao will promote a new vice chair to replace Lin Biao. This week's quote is from Audrey Lord, a modern-day civil rights activist. Quote, revolution is not a one-time event, end of quote. I want to spend a little time talking about the demise of the Jacobins and with them, by association, the Sans Culats. Actually, This is a continuation of where I left things in the last episode. Unable to master the mass demonstrations the Jacobins had relied upon in the past, they fell upon the idea of a coup d'etat. They established an insurrection group to coordinate the energies of the Democrats in Paris. The police legion had replaced the the National Guard and the Jacobins subverted the Legion. And then, although it is unclear if it was their intent to overthrow the councils and regain power, their plan was, once they regained power, to push and adopt the 1793 Constitution. As an incentive for the commoners to support the Jacobins, they were willing to give away bread and land that belonged to the Republic. But before their plans came to fruition, they were betrayed from within. The leaders of this coup attempt were arrested on May 10, 1796, 
They were put on trial the following year and executed by guillotine on May 27, 1797. Once the directory had unraveled the coup attempt, they dissolved the police legion and substituted the army for the legion. The demise of the Jacobins brought about a renewed fervor for restoring the monarchy. Indeed, the national elections in the spring of 1797 was the monarchists' best chance in a long time. The national elections were conclusive on two issues. One, it was a firm rejection of the snake oil the Jacobins were selling, and two, a general mistrust of any incumbent in the councils and directory. Some of the deputies in the councils wanted peace after waging war against and across Europe for the last five years. They hoped peace would help augur in a restoration of the monarchy. But that goal backfired on them. The Republic's generals did not want their hard-fought victories in Europe and their efforts be given away to bring back a king. In China, in addition to the abysmal situation I described in my last episode, the educational system was no exception. Remember, most schools, particularly secondary and higher education institutions, had been closed. As soon as students finished middle or high school, they were sent to the countryside for re-education by peasants. The university's campuses were deserted ghost towns. Many of their buildings had been padlocked for years. What school buildings there were that were still open had been taken over by CCP cadre as makeshift office buildings. What education there was being taught focused on ideology and praising the achievements of Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution. Young children could easily recite by rote whole passages from the Little Red Book, but not much of anything else. Even some of the teachers in this late Cultural Revolution period were illiterate. Many teachers feared doing anything that might be deemed revisionist or Western. Teachers learned to be lenient with students, never bothering to correct them if they were wrong for fear of persecution or denouncement. The CCP cadre themselves, probably one-third of them, were also illiterate or uneducated. Oddly, in many parts of China, there was a healthy black market for banned, forbidden books. While the contents of bookstores did not vary visibly, containing only works by Mao, Lenin, Stalin, and Marx, hidden away, out of sight, were thousands of banned books. Available for the right customer, and at tremendous risk to both the owner and the customer. Popular banned books were William Shear's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, and Harry Truman's Memoirs.
Many Chinese never surrendered their voracious appetites for education and books. What I found remarkable is that whole books were copied by hand to be distributed to anyone with a desire to read them. The appetite for culture did not stop with books. Foreign radio broadcasts were in demand from Moscow, Japan, New York, and Hong Kong. People learned to build their own radios so they could listen. As a result, there was a thriving cottage industry for the supply of transistors and semiconductors. Oh, sure, the CCP tried to jam these broadcasts, but the signals proved to be too strong. Other cultural practices and pursuits persisted as well. Choir singing and dancing and painting, all of it banned mostly. Religion, long a dodgy subject with the communists, even before the Cultural Revolution, still existed, underground, and practiced only in small groups. Nevertheless, it still found a way to survive. The story of Mao Zedong's wife, Jianqing, is interesting. Her story early in her life, she was an actress and, and had appeared in the Peking Opera. Once, however, the Cultural Revolution began, she tossed that all aside and oversaw the banning of all opera, with the exception of eight approved operas about the Cultural Revolution, the People's Liberation Army, and Chairman Mao. These were the only productions allowed. Through all of the Cultural Revolution, the one concept or human attitude that survived was the family. Even the hideous CCP slogan, quote, father is close, mother is close, but neither is as close as Chairman Mao, unquote, could not significantly dent the basic Chinese family construct. While Mao and other cadre encouraged children to report their parents, few did, and filial loyalty remained strong. The second directory of the Republic of France was different from the first. It was an amalgamation between moderate groups and military leaders, and both seemed to distrust the other. One immense problem they had was the country had huge financial difficulties. Tax revenue and tax administration apparatus had nearly disappeared. In many parts of France, Barter was the chief mode of commercial exchange. In desperation, the directory sold off the republic's assets. It was even hoped that some of the wealth from the conquered territories and the war indemnities France had obtained in Europe would start to roll in. But instead, the directory found that most of this money had to be used to maintain its armies in the occupied territories. In my opinion... One thing that makes the French Revolution a difficult subject to study were the vast wars she fought in Europe during much of the Revolution. When you consider whole histories have been made on these wars, I think you begin to see my point. On top of that, whole biographies have been written 
and significant portions of their lives were formed during the wars. I'm talking about people such as Napoleon Bonaparte, British Admiral Horatio Nelson, Louis Lazar Loesch, and others. I've tried to balance the French Revolution portion of this podcast to give an overall and respectfully thorough discussion, but I still feel compelled to run through the wars in review so I cover them sufficiently. Every history I have read categorizes the European wars into two slots, with an exception that I will mention. There was the war, or wars, of the First Coalition. There was also the wars of the Second Coalition. And then there was England. The wars of the First Coalition generally, generally lasted from 1792 to 1797. And it included France, Austria, England, Prussia, Spain, Portugal, and some lesser nation-states were involved at one point or another, but not all at the same time. The wars culminated in the Peace of Basel in the year 1795, ending hostilities between France and Prussia, Spain, Portugal, and some of the nation-states. France received war indemnities and was ceded the left bank of the Rhine River and small islands that were not in anywhere near or had anything to do with Europe. This was followed in the year 1797 with the Treaty of Campo Formio in Italy. The treaty was signed by Napoleon Bonaparte on behalf of France and Count Philip von Kolbenzi on behalf of the Austrian monarchy. It ended hostilities. France was ceded Belgium, much of Italy, and control of the Rhineland, which is roughly the middle and lower Rhine River Valley. Obviously, France was the victor in these engagements. England was offered more or less similar peace terms, but they broke off negotiations. More on the English situation in a little bit. The wars were then followed with the wars of the Second Coalition. These began in the year 1798 and lasted beyond the French Revolution and my podcast. Britain and Austria reformed an alliance and were later joined by Russia and Turkey. England was the common opponent through both coalitions, and were also involved in Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. Okay, what's with England? For England, the Directory wanted to attack across the English Channel to England. So recalled Napoleon from Italy and commanded him to invade England. By this time, Napoleon Bonaparte was a successful military leader, having proved himself in the wars in Europe. He also had a gigantic ego and perceived by many as pompous. When he surveyed the English or England assault idea, he reported to the directory he could not invade England, 
before the end of the year 1798, if at all. Napoleon, however, had actually been thinking about a way to attack England, indirectly. He pitched his idea to the Directory. Napoleon knew that a large amount of wealth to England came from India, and that wealth traveled through the Suez Isthmus in Egypt. If Napoleon could control Egypt, he could stop the English wealth crossing over the Suez. That would force the English to go around Cape Horn in southern Africa, making the wealth almost cost prohibitive to ship, and it certainly made the journey much riskier. Napoleon's plan was also cheaper and a smaller project for France. The Directory liked his idea. If successful, it would surely knock England out of the war. The mission also got Napoleon out of France and out of the way. If his mission failed, he would likely be finished. It seemed like a win-win for the Directory. So, on May 19, 1798, Napoleon Bonaparte's mission set sail to Egypt along with ships and supplies, he had between 35,000 to 40,000 troops. After the death of Lin Biao, Chairman Mao worried that his death was destroying the Cultural Revolution movement. At the 10th Congress in Beijing, In the year 1973, the CCP struck Lin Biao and the members of his clique from the party's official records. Mao Zedong came and promoted Wang Hongwen to be Lin Biao's successor as vice premier. Previously, Wang Hongwen was a cultural revolution leader in Shanghai And whether Mao knew it or not, allegedly, he was carrying on an affair with Mao's wife. And this is a good time to ask, who in their right mind would come forward and want to associate themselves that closely with Chairman Mao? After all, given his history with successors and vice chairs, Liu Shaoqi and Lin Biao, That position was toxic. The answer, maybe the chosen individual may not have had a real practical alternative. Turning down the chairman may not have been an option. There was also probably ego involved and a bit of naivety. Mao had been becoming increasingly concerned about his old cadre, Zhou Enlai. Mao grew increasingly leery of him and started to distance himself from him. Mao worried that Zhou Enlai would reverse the Cultural Revolution once Mao was gone. For sure, Zhou Enlai had always been dutiful and loyal to Mao Zedong. But Mao believed he was only outwardly loyal because of political necessity. 
not because he was ideologically welded to Mao. Basically, as Mao expressed, he thought Zhou Enlai was a phony. And in a play we have all seen before, several times, Mao started a campaign to destroy him. In early 1974, Mao unleashed his wife and her allies on him. They indirectly accused Zhou Enlai of being a modern-day Confucius. Confucius was despised by the communist because he represented the old aristocracy and imperial China of bygone days. The text never mentioned Zhou Enlai directly, but it was clear to anyone that they were referring to Zhou Enlai. Wang Hongwen, remember, an ally with Madame Mao, ramped up the pressure on Zhou Enlai and accused him of befriending foreigners. Aside from Wang Hongwen's desire to destroy Zhou Enlai, he went so far as wanting to restart the Cultural Revolution again a second cultural revolution, and publicly encouraged rebellion. Once again, Beijing was gripped with schoolchildren smashing everything. Once again, mass rallies were organized to root out revisionists and local officials throughout China. New leaders seized power in some provinces. We have all seen this before, and I'm sure you all get it. The campaign to destroy Zhou Enlai worked, and he was neutralized and pushed to the side. In my next episode, the French Directory proves to be an unpopular institution. The coup of 1799 that I will talk about finishes the Directory, and the Napoleon Consulate is put into place in charge, marking the end of the French Revolution. We also will learn about the Gang of Four in the Cultural Revolution. Both Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong die, thus marking the end of the Cultural Revolution. All that in the next episode. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.